Hey everyone, this is Liam McCullum again. I know it's been a while. I, a couple interviews fell through and I've been busy with school, but today I'm going to have Ian Johnson on. He is the author of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. It was named by The Economist and Christian Science Monitor as one of their best books of the year. Um, he is a regular contributor of articles and commentary to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and speaks in the media or to public audiences about China. He also teaches undergraduate courses on Chinese society. He was also awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on China and the Stanford University Shorenstein Prize for his body of work on Asia. So yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about just the situation in China right now with the coronavirus and religion and the religious boom that's going on in China. I hope you enjoy it. If you make it to the end, thank you so much. Let me know what you think. Hey, Ian. Thanks for coming hey. on. You're 15 hours ahead? Uh, yes, it's 7.30 in the morning here. The wow. Day, so it's uh, Thursday morning. Well, well, good morning. Today I wanted to talk a little about what's going on in China. I know you've released a few articles recently. But before that, can you go into a little about yourself? And I know you wrote a book on religion after Mao. Can you segue into that as well? Uh, yes, so I, uh, well, let's see, I was born in 1962, so I'm, I'll be 58 years old this year, later this year, and I came to China for the first time when I was 22 in 1984. I was an undergraduate at the University of Florida, and I stayed here for six months in a language program, went back, finished my BA, worked a little bit, but realized I wanted to keep learning Chinese and that... The one thing my experience here taught me is that I had to be in China. I think the environment's really important for learning Chinese. My, I, even though I'd studied Chinese at the university, my Chinese was no good. So I, at the time, it was hard to go to the mainland. It was still just opening up after the Cultural Revolution. So I went to Taiwan, which uh, was a great choice because it's you know it's a much more open society and it was easy to. Um, study Chinese there, so I did that, and then uh, went. Let's see. Then I well, I went to graduate school, etc. Worked and got eventually sent got sent back to China in 1994 as a correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. Then in '97, I switched over to the Wall Street Journal and stayed there for 10 years. But then, it, but part of that time was in Germany, and then. Uh, because I, I left China in 2001, so I was there from 94 to 01 as a as a as a journalist, and then came back here in 09. I was still with the Wall Street Journal, but I, I after one year, that always been my plan. I quit to become a freelance mm. writer, work on books, uh, go a little bit more toward academia, uh, teach, and stuff like that. And okay. basically, that's what I've been doing since then. Um, has, so it's that track that I've been following. So that's my shorthand bio, I guess. Awesome. Well, so yeah, specifically regarding your, your book, um, Religion After Mao, can you mm. can you explain what what religion was like under Mao, uh, how, how the government cracked down on it, and how it's kind of evolved afterwards? Well, yeah, so when the communists took power, they promised um, religious freedom to all groups, um, before they took power, they were uh, in, in the hinterlands of China, 
a sort of more of a guerrilla operation. They had dealt with a number of religious groups, including uh, including Muslims, because it was quite a quite heavily Muslim area and so on. And so they promised all these groups religious freedom. And in the Constitution, like in a lot of countries' constitutions, uh, you know, it looks all great, but it's uh, implementing it was completely different. And when they took when they took um, control in 1949, they set up this model of having, which is still the same model that we find today, of having five officially recognized religious groups. I, I don't want to say religion because you have, um, because the five groups include uh, two groups of Christianity. So it's they have so it's really four religions but five groups. So it's mm. Buddhism, Taoism. Islam and Christianity, which is split into Catholicism and Protestantism for the purposes in China. Although the Chinese seem to treat Protestantism and Catholicism as two separate religions. So they okay. said five religions, so like four. Um, and so they, they set up this system where you have these loyal, quote unquote, patriotic associations that run the official religious life. Uh, and let me know if it's, anything's unclear. Okay. You know, you're not following where I'm going here. Um, and basically, so you have a house, a government-run um, Protestant church, a government-run Catholic church, um, a government-run Buddhist association, Islamic association, and Taoist association. So you got all these official-run religious groups, um, and that. And then, then they basically report to the government. It's not, I mean, it sounds quite jar, jarring to American ears, but on the other hand, you have to recognize, recognize that, you know, in England, there's the Church of England is sort of a, an offshoot of the government, and it's, um, you know, the, the head of it is the queen. And so it's not entirely unprecedented. You know, if, if you look back over European history, you see a really tight tie between church and state. And, and the American model is, um, is quite innovative in, in trying to separate um, right. religion and the government. But anyway, so the Chinese government uh, set up a system where they have these five officially run religions. And at the same time, there were always groups that didn't fit into this groups. You know, there's a diversity of religious life in China. Some groups didn't fit into those five categories, especially folk religion in China, which is kind of like an amalgam of Buddhism, Taoism, local practices and stuff like that that don't quite neatly fit into that paradigm. Um, you had also other groups that had been here for various reasons, like the, the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, up in northeastern China next to the Russian border. Um, and, and then, you know, later, the problem with this model is, especially now in the modern modern age, you have... Uh, people coming into China from other countries, Hindus from India, uh, Jewish people from different countries. They're not Chinese people, but they can't legally practice their religion in China either because you've got this very narrow, rigid system. But uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, just to go back to the 50s, so Mao and, and, and his uh, government set up this system. And then, um, but very quickly, in the mid to late 50s, around 57, uh, began to implement ever more radical policies. Um, radical on a whole range of things. Uh, Mao was a sort of utopian, radical utopianist, and wanted to achieve communism as quickly as possible. 
within a few years, those five official religious groups were no longer functioning. People, and, and increasingly, as the years went on, especially starting with the Cultural Revolution in 1966, um, religious life basically just went underground, and there was no public practice of religious life, period. All and that goes for all religions in China. So mosques, churches, temples were all closed. And basically Mao implemented a personality cult. And he was the sort of the red sun rising in the east. I mean, this is actually the vocabulary that was used. And was kind of a, it was a personality cult, just like Stalin in the Soviet Union. Right. Um, but even, even more so, because uh, people... It really did look like a, a kind of a ersatz religion. It had, I don't know if you've heard of the little red book, mm. it's little book booklets of Mao's sayings that people used to carry around, and uh, people, you know, would wave this around like like a, some talisman or, or like you know the Bible or something like that. Right. Like this was really important, and Mao badges, a little bit like North Korea, maybe you know Mao badges on people's uh, chest and stuff like that, and then. Uh, so that, that, that ended, of course, when Mao died in 1976, and then we get into the post-Mao era. So that was sort of a, a quick overview of the okay. Mao period. So it started out with these five official religious groups, and then Mao pretty quickly um, closed them off by the late 50s, and the, religious life just went increasingly underground. And then when Mao, after Mao dies, the government tries to revive, or does revive these five official religious groups and that's what we have today okay we've got the five official religious groups and then we've got underground uh, religious practice as well okay and by underground that's kind of like their illegal practice yes okay. right there's a a really good um paper uh well, it depends how deep you want to go into this but by a political scientist and he has this category of three markets for Chinese religion. The red market, which is the official communist market. Uh, the black market, which is officially banned religious groups. And then this gray market, which is stuff that's kind of banned but tolerated and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so the red market would be the official run of churches, anything in China that looks like church, for example, a steeple or, you know, whatever, and, and pews. A building uh, like that, they're all government run. Uh, big temples that you can go visit, or mosques, and so on. And then the black market are groups like Falun Gong, which are explicitly banned and absolutely illegal. You can't practice them at all. They're considered cults. And in the gray market, you've got things like underground churches, um, which the government knows exists. The Public Security Bureau is pretty efficient here. Um, but they, they're just apolitical and just worshiping on Sundays and there's no other, nothing else going on. They kind of tolerate you, although, you know, varying degrees of toleration. Mm. So that's like the grain market. So that's sort of the overall picture. Okay. Has it has it always been that the Chinese government still kind of sees these religious groups as almost like competition or is it i guess how are they since they are government operated how does that go into all of this right well i think they um they tolerate religious groups for various reasons i mean i think a a, a hard-boiled communist would think that as we progress toward communism um 
people will not need religion anymore. This like idea that Marx had that religion can only be understood as the opiate of the masses. So because mm-hmm. people have problems, you still kind of hear this. You know, people in the West will say this also. People are religious because they got problems. You know, right. somebody died in their family, so they turned to God or something like that, right? Or they've got something, that, you know, some spiritual burden and mm-hmm. so they turn to god and certainly that is the reason why people are religious that's part of the explanation but i think that's sort of the only way that the communists can can think of religion they don't view it as a sort of integral part of society so when something like the, so for things like a coronavirus i think they there are these religious groups there are official churches and they are allowed to help out a bit but in a grudging way and as for the un- illegal groups, as I mentioned in that article, like those uh, Protestant churches that wanted to contribute and couldn't, they're really not allowed to. Um, if you say, why is the government so skeptical? Uh, I think it's um, um, the government's skeptical because it doesn't want any groups outside of its control to organize people, to exercise control. Mm. So. You know, if you're familiar with the idea of civil society, civil society are parts of society that are not under government control. So in the United States, you could think of the, you know, volunteer fire department or the Kiwanis Club or uh, the PTA um, or the Red Cross or the Shriners or a trade union or, you know, anything like that, any group of people that's not run by the government. So there's a lot in the United States, Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff like that that's not run. But in China... Every group like that should in some way be, if not directly registered with the government, monitored in some way by the government. So NGOs, non-governmental organizations, say an environmental group um, like Friends of Nature or Green, you know, Greenpeace, for example, mm-hmm. um, that's an NGO. Um, that's not really allowed in China. They tolerate an office in China, but they don't have sort of a nationwide network. So... Um, by the same token, churches, mosques, temples are all run by people, right? It's just a church in the United States or, or any religious group um, would be a classic civil society organization. China's very skeptical of that. And they've been skeptical since the 1950s, but they've been hypersensitive since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of communism in 1989. And... That was partly driven by civil society organizations. For example, in Poland, the Catholic Church played a role in in giving shelter to opposition groups. In East Germany, the Protestant Church played a similar function. Um, You had also environmental groups in various communist countries. And so the the Chinese communists have learned from that, right? They said, Mm -hmm. oh, these groups helped undermine party control over society and we can't allow that to happen right um so they're kind of pragmatic in the sense that they say well look it's just a bunch of people who really just meet in somebody's home for a church service every sunday and they just sing hymns and read the bible and go home and there's nothing else to it and it's not too big and it's not organized and there's no national network of similar churches okay, we can accept that. So there's 20 people they meet, no big deal. But if it becomes like 20 churches of 20 people and they set up a a network of unaffiliated churches or something like that or a denomination, like say the Baptists of China, forget it. That's not legal. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's no different than NGOs. So if you want to, if you've got a polluted river in your backyard and you say, hey, a bunch of us are going to get together to try to clean up the river, that's okay. But if you say, well, I'm going to set up a national network to clean up the rivers in China because the government isn't doing a good job and it's polluting everything because of this industrialization, blah, 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 that's totally illegal. Hmm. So they don't want any structures that could challenge party control. That's, I think, the key thing. They just don't want anything that could challenge their control. And if you think of it like that, then you can understand their the reaction to pretty much everything right uh, goes on. so i kind of wanted to i want to go through the numbers really quick to follow up my question mm-hmm. so the the china buddhist association contributed 14 million dollars to the fight against the coronavirus the protestant association 10 million islamic 4.5 million catholics 1.5 and taoist 1.9 but so then you say that the red cross the china charity federation and the hubei charity federation altogether they've mm-hmm. they've um accumulated 1.9 billion so what is it billion right yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so what what's the corruption that is what what are people worried about why why are they relying on churches what type of corruption is going on within the red cross and all of these groups well, there's been, I think there's a lot of skepticism about the about government-run charities. It's, it's been around for a while. Um, it goes back, I mean, if you uh, Google, for example, um, a case of a woman named Guo Mei Mei, there's been a whole, she was a sort of starlet who was supposed to be working for the Red Cross or something, and she seems to be spending money at the Red Cross. You know, it was various sort of little scandals like that um but bigger things also i mean there's been the 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 red cross even if it's not direct corruption it's considered to be very bureaucratic with high overhead um and so people are are, i think that you know their money is going to be kind of wasted if it goes to these groups Mm -hmm. um it just seems like Basically, I think the problem is it seems like you're just giving money to the government. And since the government seems to have plenty of money to do stuff like build aircraft carriers or whatever, then why do you need, what's the point of giving, you know, 100 yuan or like $15 or something like that to the government? Uh, whereas, I, so I think if you're giving, you know, you find this with giving around the world, that if it's sort of locally and you kind of know people and so on, then you feel like your money is more useful useful if you say mm-hmm. hey give money to the united way you know maybe people are somewhat some people don't want to give money to some mega charities like that even if they're well run um because um, they think they're just too big and so too like sort of can't beat them join them uh, so we, this, unaccountable this, or something um, like that but i think in china religious revival going on in china, in china. Is, uh let's try to co-opt as much as possible of, of, of and candles um, around the, in other big, words Let's try to, uh, if people have to believe in something, let's encourage them to believe things that are, that we think are more easily controllable. Mm. Uh, you, so, you sort of see this in Russia, post-communist Russia, where Vladimir Putin, you know, ex-KGB guy, probably uh, was a super atheist, <laughs> yeah. nobody's in the KGB to crack down religion, <laughs> and he becomes like this born-again Orthodox Russian churchgoer. Mm-hmm. Um, now you can say he had a moment of conversion. Who knows, right? Or it could be, uh, and cynical here, but knowing Putin, it's probably a, a part of a ploy to uh, to co-opt the Orthodox Church in Russia, make it a state church again that's under 
gets lavish money from the government um, as long as they toe the government line, they don't make any critical statements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think sort of financial things in China. Uh, people think that all religion is persecuted in China, but it's the like, case. Hey, if you're if you're playing ball with the government, you can be pretty generous. They build mosques, they build churches, they build temples, they allow these groups to expand, or they don't even have to pay money for this because people in China have money. China's getting more prosperous. People want to donate money to these things. They just give you the permission to. They say, yeah, you've got this temple, and it's, you know. 300 square meters, you want to double that in size and you got all the money, go ahead because, you know, you've been a loyal uh, member of the, or, or, you know, you've been uh, a loyal, I don't say party member, but you've been uh, accommodating to the government in the past and you can go ahead, we know who you are, etc. Kind of the same with, so Buddhism and Taoism are, are like that. Um, but they're, even, even with the official churches, I think they're a little more skeptical of Christianity and Islam because these are much more global religions. Uh, mm. I mean, Buddhism is a global religion in that it's practiced in other countries as well. But Islam and Christianity are really global religions. You know, the Catholic Church is headquartered in Rome, and obviously Protestant groups are all over the world. The world, um, Islam is the the pilgrimage is in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So you've got this draw outside the country. So I think that's why the government toward those religions is much more skeptical, even if they're official religions. They're kind of like, well, uh, okay, but we're not going to really encourage it that much. But if you're Taoist, Buddhist, or folk religion groups, groups that don't even fit into those uh, five official groups, but uh, are, are similar in a way to Buddhism and Taoism, the government is much more likely to say, yeah, go ahead and expand. Um, people need to worship somewhere better that they worship uh, at one of these uh, places that we know are kind of loyal or at least apolitical, and that's okay. So I think that's the idea of the civil religion that they, um, are, yeah, are thinking along those lines. What type of relationship does the uh, Catholic Church? I, I know that they had to make some deals with the Catholic Church. Um, mm -hmm. What type of stuff's going on there with their relationship? Well, the Catholic. Catholic Church, um, of the five religions or five religious groups in China, um, I'm going to get out my rowing machine and just row while we talk. I hope that doesn't, you can just ignore the sound of the machine going into the background. Yeah. Um, uh, so the, of, of the five religious groups, the Catholic Church is probably the weakest in terms of numbers and so on and so forth, smallest. And you can see that in those donations, the figures that you cited. Um so they're they're smaller um, be part you know there's various reasons for that which you go into or not go into I wrote a piece on Catholicism in China which I could also send you a separate piece on that mm -hmm. um, and if you want to know more just ask but I, th uh, I think partly because of that the church recognized that they had to do um, something to break through the deadlock I think part of the problem they had so why are they weak I guess I do have to go into that sort of explain the deal um, they, the Catholic Church is a very hierarchically organized organ, uh, religion, as you know. It's got the, the Pope sort of nominally at least at the top, and it's got cardinals and bishops and priests, and on paper at least it looks like a perfect sort of pyramid, mm -hmm. um, although in reality it's much more complex than that. But um, 
the problem is if you and I, I guess a key point in Catholicism, this is probably going too much into the into details, but just to sort of understand it, the, the bishops and priests are supposed to be, in theory, there's this principle of apostolic ex, uh, succession where you're a direct descendant of, of, of St. Peter. So you are in that, in the footsteps of that person. You've been consecrated. You've been, um, in, you've taken your post by somebody who has been approved by the Vatican, even if very indirectly, you know, through a, a bishop and so on and so forth. But the bishops are all approved by by the Vatican. So if you're a bishop, if you're if you're a, a Catholic believer, let's say, and you're in a um, a district where the bishop has not been approved by the Vatican, uh, has not been nominated by the Pope, then that bishop is not really um yes i don't want to say he's not legal it's it's he's not um sort of an approved member of the church and mm. the priests under him are also out of communion they call it so then you're not worshiping in a proper catholic church and so that's why the catholic church is a very strong underground component mm-hmm. um because many of the bishops have not been approved by the vatican they've been approved by the patriotic catholic church in beijing um Many Catholics and worship at underground churches where the bishops and priests have been approved in some way by the Vatican. But this, so this is why you have the underground and the above ground church in Catholicism. But this has really led to sort of paralysis. It's very hard to build a functioning, viable church if you've got this division, this strong division. So the church has not grown very quickly in. Uh, things like urbanization, where people are moving from villages to cities um, as part of Chinese economic development. And Catholicism was a heavily rural religion. They come to the cities and the churches aren't sort of organized to welcome them or keep them in the church. And so they just sort of stop going to church. So the number of Catholics has actually been falling. Mm. Um, it's pretty good statistical evidence on that. Um, so... I think the church realizes it needed to. So what did they want to do? They wanted to sort of fix this problem where they would, along with the Chinese government together, would jointly appoint bishops. And that way, in theory at least, all the bishops in China would become uh, legitimized. And you could, in good conscience, conscience as a Catholic, um, worship in a government church. You wouldn't have this division anymore. Um, and hopefully if the Vatican were involved in appointing bishops, you'd get better bishops, people who, for example, haven't violated their celibacy vows and something's been the case here. Um, and so that's the idea behind it, that the bishops would be jointly approved. Exactly how that functions isn't quite clear. I think they sort of will sit down and say there are these three people we're considering and one side might say, well, that person we can't agree with, but the other two we can, and it's for somebody. Uh, hmm. The exact mechanics, I don't know. Uh, it hasn't been made public, so... Okay. There was, at some point, there was something where, you know, they'd have a list of three people that the Vatican would come up with and what the Chinese choose, or vice versa, or something like that. Right. But that way, they can feel comfortable with the choice, so that's the deal. And some people say it's a sellout, because you're working with the government, uh, together, it's a communist government, blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't do that. Pragmatist, including the current pope, says we need to do something. I mean, the current system's not working. It's not like we've got this 
church. It's, it's declining. We need to have some better structures in place to make it work. Right. And um, so, so if the Catholic Church, if, if numbers are going down, especially in China, is, or is religion as a whole going down in China or is it increasing? No, I think, I think this just makes the case for some sort of a deal even more imperative in many people's eyes that there is a religious revival going on. Religions are growing across the board, and it's only the Catholic Church that's not participating in this boom. Right. So, you know, it's like you've got a business model and a growing economy, and everyone else is making money, but you're not. And so it's like, well, what are we doing wrong? Um, if you look at, if you just, I mean, it's a bit of a, uh, the numbers have to be kind of qualified, but in 1949, when the communists took power, there were 3 million Catholics and 1 million Protestants. Um, and now there are roughly only 10 to 12 million Catholics. So it's gone up three or four times, but so has China's population. Mm. Uh, whereas the number of Protestants has gone from 1 million to conservatively 60 million. Mm. So it's increased rapidly. Um, and so the question I think for many Catholics is why haven't we increased also? Right. Are you religious yourself? I was raised in a fairly religious Protestant household. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I still go to church. I'm, I don't know how religious <laughs> I am. <laughs> but yes, uh, Episcopal. Okay. What do you think is driving the religion, like the religious boom in China then? Well, I think... Um, on the one hand, you could say it's simply a return to some kind of normalcy, that all countries have certain amounts of religious belief. You know, that would mm -hmm. be one sort of explanation, uh, that this is sort of a normal part of human existence or society, uh, or at least has been for many thousands of years. So, um, so a return to religion is normal. I think there's a bit more than that, though. I think there's also a search for values. Um, traditional Chinese society was destroyed when they imperial system collapsed in 1911, the emperor abdicated, and, and the whole traditional values, Confucian world view, all of that sort of collapsed and was attacked over the course of the 20th century. So although today some people say, oh, they believe in Confucianism or something, I mean, as a way of life, it's all sort of gone. So this is this process of modernization that you found around the world um, when, you know, even in the West where you know, everybody used to go to church or something like that, and now not everybody goes to church. And everybody used to believe in, you know, the Ten Commandments, or at least they, they thought they should or they should have or something. But now uh, it's sort of a take it or leave, take it if you'd like, you know, as you like sort of attitude toward these uh, traditional values. So China went through this, but just even more radically. And then it was replaced by Maoism, but then and communism. But communism turned out to be pretty hollow. Nobody believes in communism anymore. There have been a series of disasters, famines, political purges, and stuff like that, or the Tiananmen Square massacre from 1989. And it gets harder and harder to sort of believe the Communist Party has some really great values that they're espousing. So I think this leads us to a spiritual vacuum. Hmm. It's that kind of a void in society where people don't have anything to believe in. Um, traditional stuff is gone. Communism turned out to be a sham. What do I believe in? You know, some people just say, well, I believe I'm going to make money. So that sort of has driven a lot of things in China. It's pure uh, consumerism and stuff like that. But I think after a while, you know, human beings have this need for something else. Like, so once I've got my 
BMW and my Italian marble kitchen and all this stuff. <laughs> what more is there to life? You know, this is sort of like this eternal question that people always have throughout in any civilization, throughout history, to try to make sense of things. You know, and well, how do you live a good life? And what is a good life? Like, right. is it just getting rich and making sure my kid gets into Harvard and I park my money in an offshore account or something like that, <laughs> uh, or there's just something more. So, and that's, I think, driving it, these kind of considerations. Mm. Um, so I want to mention one more thing about what's going on in, uh, in China right now, but then I want to get into what it's like being a journalist in China. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. what, do you know anything about the situation with the Uyghurs right now in China? I just know what I've read. I haven't been to Xinjiang in 10 years, so okay. I don't know um, what the situation is. I mean, I think there's very credible reports. There's obviously, there are these camps. The government admits it. They just call, give them a different name. They say, oh, there are uh, vocational training centers. But there's so many reports coming out that paint a very different picture. It can't all be, you know, a fabrication of the CIA or something right. like that. Right? So it's... it's pretty clear that they are taking a radical policy of secularization so even any sort of outward um uh expression of religious belief so women wearing the hijab um men with facial hair you know uh in traditional china men used to wear used to have little you know used to have beards and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. nowadays people are pretty clean shaven and and this is now seen as if you wear a beard in Xinjiang, you're, you know, a Muslim extremist or something like that. Hmm. Um, so, then they're, you know, going around and test, asking people questions like, how often do you pray? And why do you have that picture of Mecca on your wall? And I mean, very normal things that people, Muslims all around the world have, you know. And uh, so this is now considered to be a, a sign of radicalism. And... Um, then they're being sent to these vocational schools, so-called re-education camps, I guess. Um, that's, but that's about the extent of what I know. Okay. Um, and just regarding what it's like to be a journalist right now, have you, have you found any struggles in China? Is it, is it hard for an American journalist, especially reporting on religion? Um, well, it's hard to get the government's point of view. Mm. Uh, the government... You'd think they'd want to tell their side of the story, but I think they just don't talk to foreign journalists pretty much anymore at all and uh, try to isolate us. And so, but, you know, you can still, just by persistence, you can talk to people. And there are many people who are happy to talk about their religious belief. Um, So I know people in the unofficial religious groups, the, you know, it's like underground churches and so Mm -hmm. on. And in that book on religion after Mao, one of the, storylines is about an underground church um so i know those kind of people i know people in the legal church uh or legal temples you know stuff like that so Mm -hmm. i think after a while like anywhere if people see that your intentions are good that you're sincere that you're not out to just write some sensationalistic story uh you can eventually get people to talk it just takes a little bit more time and i think one of the problems that journalism has this inherent to the profession is you don't have enough time right so you kind of are always rushing from story to story and it's sort of hard to build those contacts what's it like being like a contributor to a bunch of different places and living living abroad well um early on in my career i was i 
wanted to travel abroad and I was interested in journalism and so I thought I could combine the two um and yeah I mean I just I I of course I like my job I like these kinds of things I like being a freelance journalist the best because I can work on projects that I want to work on and not not dictated to by an editor um but it's less financially secure. Right. So, uh, obviously, you have a, a regular job with a contract and stuff like that, then you've got your pension plan or whatever, your health care, self-covered and so on. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I enjoy doing it. I think the main thing is if you want to do something like that is you have to kind of do it. You just you have to do it and be persistent. I think... It's sort of like anything in life, you know. It's whatever they say, 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. I think it's yeah, you know, almost anything is like that. I don't mean you know, follow your dreams and it'll all come true. That's not that's not the way the world works either. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people say, well, I wish I could do that, and it's like, well, okay, you could do that. <laughs> Just, right. you know, but then you're not going to be able to maybe afford the BMW or whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Do you do you find any struggles with editors still, just as a freelance journalist? Like, are there certain like when you're talking about religion or something like that, do you ever find any, I guess, pushback? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the funny things that's happened uh, over the past 20 years, so like in your lifetime, basically, but <laughs> especially starting, um, yeah, especially starting, say, 15 years ago, is the widespread use of the internet has been, of course, great, and we can learn so many things and quickly find out facts and stuff right. like that. But it also empowers editors back home to sort of become uh, half-baked experts on stuff. So they'll say, oh, well, I saw something in blah, blah, blah that says something different. Right. And so you get a lot of this kind of second-guessing or it's, it's more like following conventional wisdom, you know, like the conventional wisdom because I saw it in the Washington Post and I saw it in Foreign Policy magazine why aren't you writing it that way? Mm. You know, and it's like, well, my take is different. Well, okay, if you know, if you're really, mm. but you know, it seems like everyone else is saying da 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 da, da. and that's become it's it's ironic because we have more sources of information, but in some ways we just seem to follow conventional wisdom even more strongly. So you know, everybody says, oh, the coronavirus is going to shake people's belief in the Communist Party because they messed up so badly and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and if you say well you know maybe that's not the case and people like look at you as if you're uh don't have your head screwed on straight right and so i think that's that's the risk is that that's the hard thing to counter it's just to sort of let to, if, if to have editors trust the people in the field mm-hmm. um but then we're under pressure too we're reading the same things and we're like hmm you know it seems like everybody else is saying that so maybe that's what's happening yeah do you do you think that freelance is more of the answer now is because what i've seen is that well it it appears that like media has decentralized and do you think that that's the way that it's moving do you think freelance is the answer yeah um media is decentralizing it's becoming it's separating out i think one of the strengths of american journalism especially say newspaper journalism was that you had all these really great regional newspapers like the chicago tribune and uh well in florida where i used to live the st petersburg times the miami herald um even the orlando sentinel was really a good paper um but now you're getting a few elite newspapers that 
have the still have and all these papers, the Philadelphia Inquirer, they all had foreign correspondence. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, if you look at the net number of foreign correspondents, for example, it's more than it was 20 years ago. So there's more people out in the field, but there were, it's more concentrated in a few media organizations. So mm. if you think in the U.S. now, only the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the L.A. Times, I believe that's accurate. They're the only newspapers that have any foreign correspondence mm. at all. And then you got AP, Associated Press, um, Reuters, which is the, the British Newswire. They've got foreign correspondents also. But in terms, so in terms of English language, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. Now you got then all these other, like small magazines and blogs and stuff like that, and it provides um, it provides a way in for freelancers. So foreign policy magazine and stuff like that. But in, often those publications are looking for clickbait and they want something done quickly and they'll pay you 500 bucks and it sounds like well 500 bucks is great but you know if you actually have to work on a story for a week or two and you're actually trying to make a living and paying your health insurance and all that 500 dollars for two weeks of work is not very good right um you know that's you make more money at mcdonald's um so it's there's a lot of almost like exploitation in the current system where we're just you know getting people to write a few articles and not paying their expenses and stuff like that. And then if they, when they drop out because they realize it's not viable and getting somebody else to come in and work and do stuff. I think that's the problem with freelancing is it's hard to make a real living off it. You have mm-hmm. to, um, you have to think pretty hard about that. I think when you're, if you're, you know, if you're young and you've just graduated from college, it's great. You can go abroad and you can get some experience and that's fine. Um, there's something to be said though, for working at an organization because you'll get, better usually better more regular editing you'll have contact with colleagues you can learn a lot from other people if you're just sitting in your small studio apartment in beijing you know and you're 22 years old and you're trying to figure out what you're going to write on it's pretty tough right unless you uh it's better if you're in a newsroom and then you're like people can guide you and Mm -hmm. maybe you know do that for a few years and then go freelance be my advice okay and just to finish up here, back to what's going on in China, um, is are people right to be like you, you? You wrote an article about the panic epidemic in China. Are people right to be freaking out, or what? What are you observing there? Mm, well, I think people are right to be worried. I think some of the measures have not been very effective. Mm-hmm. I think the government is trying to show that it's doing something. This whole, and pretty much every expert will say that these really simple light blue hospital masks that people wear, these are blue-green masks, yeah. um, those are pretty much useless. They will not prevent the coronavirus. A mask to be effective has to be extremely tight around your face. And But, you know, they're still like insisting that you wear any kind of mask as a way to almost like show that you're towing the line in some way you're following <laughs> what the government's asking so i think the reaction is the problem and it's also a problem we're going to face in other countries in western countries in the u.s and i think yesterday or it was the day before the head of the cdc in atlanta gave a press conference and he said you know it's not 
realistic to think we can entirely prevent this virus from spreading in the U.S. It's going to probably spread. Right. And then you can't put the entire United States under lockdown like you can in an authoritarian state like China. Mm-hmm. And even then, it didn't really stop the virus to spread. So people are going to have to deal with this in a more rational way. And I just think this kind of panicky, like, let me buy 50 uh, face masks. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Hong Kong, they had to run on toilet paper for some reason. <laughs> I mean, that's just irrational, you know. Uh, it's There are common sensible things you can do. And 90% more effective or something is is uh, washing your hands properly mm-hmm. um those kinds of things just good public hygiene um but that's I, I think the media also plays a role in spreading this because they're they're keeping track of the number of cases and dead people almost like it's a, a sports game you know it's really? like, oh another 50 people died another 2,000 cases oh my god it's spreading blah 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 you know you get this feeling like the world's falling off a cliff, but it's probably not that mm-hmm. many, you know, it's like, I mean, not to sound crass or something, but it's, I have to put it in perspective. I mean, people die every year of the flu, tens of thousands of people die in the United States every year of the flu. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the panic is, is real, but and it's a challenge we're all going to face. Right. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. Okay. My pleasure. Yeah. And good luck. Talk to you later. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you made it the whole way, I'd like to thank you. Uh, Please share with your friends, family. I'd like to keep interviewing within the next few weeks. I I had the plan to do it weekly, but I guess it won't necessarily be that strict just with school and everything like that. I do have a few guests lined up. I think that they should be pretty interesting, but I do want to kind of diversify, like I said in an earlier podcast, um, kind of all over the place with this. I mean, I talked about anti-war stuff, states' rights, God, gold, nuclear energy, and now China and the coronavirus. So we'll see where this goes. I, I actually plan on interviewing some family and some friends that I think that are quite interesting. Um, there's some stories that might impact you. But yeah, if if you have any topics that you'd like me to cover or anyone that you'd like me to try to reach out to, please let me know. And if you have any advice or if you have any opinions about how it's been and how it sounds, I know there are some problems with technology so far. I'm trying to make that stuff better. But yeah, just let me know what you think and please come back soon.